welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me, and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings, and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm, and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Hi everyone, so welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. And today we're doing things a little bit differently. I have come to the realisation that after doing this podcast for nearly a year and a half, the content that is in all these episodes is so extraordinary. And um, sometimes I think going back, reflecting and re-listening to some of the episodes um, can be so helpful for myself. But I also think for, for you guys as well as the listeners, and maybe you are a new listener, maybe you are starting from some of the newer episodes. And I wanted to sort of share some of my most pivotal episodes, the ones that have really resonated with many of you, but also with me, with some fantastic conversations, incredible insights and reflections that I hope will help you as you navigate your ADHD and your diagnosis, your awareness, and really help you move forwards with um, lots of practical tips and advice and guidance, because this is what the podcast is about. The podcast is about empowering you with making new choices and stepping into this new chapter of your life with new ways of living that feel good to you, that feel aligned with you and authentic. So, today's episode, we're going to be going back to some older ones. Um, We have incredible guests. We have Dr. Ned Halliwell. We have Stacey Heal. We have Priyanka Patel and Joseph Pack, Alex Campbell and Sarah Templeton. We've also got Winford Dorr as well. So some of these episodes have been the most popular. I've had lots of messages about and I've pulled out some of the highlights of these episodes so you can really take another listen and maybe things have changed for you since you listened initially. Maybe you had hadn't received your official diagnosis and now you have now be able to see these episodes or listen to these episodes in a new light so i really hope that um, the guests the clips the episodes really help you in some way and don't forget that if you really enjoyed listening to these clips go back and listen to the original episodes as well so here we go i've pulled these out for you and i really do hope you enjoy so let's take a listen from dr ned halliwell so there i am sitting in july a warm summer morning in July, and this uh, teacher, Elsie Freeman is her name, she was a a neurologist and a psychiatrist, and she introduced me to what was then called ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder, the H wasn't part of it. And as she talked, I had this, you know, it's like Saul on the way to Damascus, and I thought, whoa, that's me. And, uh, but the more she talked, the more I realized that the medical model, the deficit disorder model, left out all the good stuff. I knew I was smart. I mean, I proved it many times over. So you you can't tell me I've got some disorder or if it is a disorder, then it's got a lot of good stuff with it. And that's what I realized then that, that, yeah, I had this condition called ADD, but that the medical model only got it half right. They, They left out all the good part. 
And that makes sense because medicine is about pathology. You don't go to the doctor because you feel so good. Uh, you go to the doctor because you're in some kind of pain. But when it comes to the mind, it's really important that you fill out the rest of the story because we identify with our minds. We, we don't identify with our kidneys. You know, if you say, well, you've got a sick kidney, you, you don't take offense at that. But if you say you've got a sick mind, you do take offense at it, and it hurts your feelings, and it it diminishes you you in your in your own rating, and that's the real disability that we inadvertently create. We practitioners, the real disability is not uh, ADHD and the symptoms that come with it. The real disability is thinking you're stupid, yeah, and thinking you can't do stuff, yeah, and thinking you're excluded from the higher walks of life. And, and if you're not so, I can name you people at the top of every single profession who have it. I can name you Nobel Prize winners, you know, self-made billionaires, let alone millionaires. And, and you know, most entrepreneurs have it. But most people don't know that, in, including, you know, the people in medicine who, who I think, Russ Barkley, who's one of the leading researchers in the field, uh, said to me once, Ned, will you please stop talking about the advantages with ADD because nobody wants to fund research into advantages. Mm. Yeah. So there, there is a reason you want to promote the downside because then you'll get research money to investigate it. And you know, I fully appreciate that. The problem with promoting the downside is the damage you do to the people who have the condition. They walk around thinking they have a deficit disorder. I mean, what's that terrible term? A deficit disorder? I've got a deficit disorder. There's no way you can give that to a child or an adult and have them feel good about it. Um, and, and, it's, uh, it, and it's inaccurate. We don't have a deficit of attention. We have an abundance of attention. Our challenge is to control it. Yeah. So it, it's, and I don't see it as a disorder. I see it as a trait. If you manage it right, it can become a great asset as it has done for me and for millions of others. And here is Stacey Hale unpacking her own ADHD diagnosis during deep grief. Well, after he died, I suddenly there's all this stuff to do and I couldn't do any of it. And, and that is a grief thing as well, like that kind of immobility, that, that shock that sets in. But also, um, yeah, all of that executive function stuff just came hard and fast. And still to this day, um, 18 months later... I have only just cancelled his phone contract and that's not through any kind of um, reason of like, oh, I still want to be able to like text him or like it's too, it's too stressful to do it. It was just like, oh my God, I just, I, I, I just can't understand how to do this. Um, I've only just cancelled his bank account. I mean, I can't tell you of all the paperwork that I haven't done to do with his death there is so much paperwork after someone dies and it feels like a cruel joke to anybody of like here's the worst time of your life now you suddenly have to become some kind of PA for them to deal with the closing of their life and it's hard and if you have those issues with those things it's pretty impossible it's actually impossible yeah. so and there's the payoff to that of like I mean, I don't even want to think about, so, which is why I'm not doing it, yeah. of like, what happens when I actually do contact these people? How much, like, am I going to owe them money? Potentially. Have I lost money? Probably. Yeah. 
So I think my life would probably have been easier if I'd have gravitated to someone who who could kind of plug those gaps for me. It's prepared you, I guess, because you. it's in that sense that you've <laughs> yeah. not had to be like, oh my God, it's all on me now. Like it was you anyway. Yes. Yeah. And actually, no, you're, you're correct about that. Definitely. That it's not just me. I was always that person that did it. So it's not this horrific shock. And I worry for, for, for women in particular, not necessarily people who have ADHD, but this would affect them more of women who, whose husbands are the people who deal with the money, who know the passwords, who deal with the paperwork. And if they die, what happens then? Like you don't know how anything in your life functions. And that's very terrifying, I think, for women in general. So I would suggest that even if you find it hard, find a way to kind of boil that down with your partner so at least you know where your assets are, what the password is to get into your bank account. I know many people that have been fucked because of it because they didn't have that. And yeah, if you're dealing with ADHD or any neurodivergence on top of that, it makes things so much harder. Yeah, and that is it's actually a very real worry for quite a lot of people where they know that they are reliant on that neurotypical person, that neurotypical person is the executive functioning in the relationship. And the bank stuff, the tax stuff, the invoices, the mortgage, all things like that, you know, with them because they find it easier. And then we just kind of bury our heads in the sand. And and if that's easier, then we'll just, you know, do that. But there is a very real fear there that, and I think we have to kind of almost broach that fear because you're right. It's no one wants to be in that situation where you can't access the things that, you know, you deserve. But it was just making me think that um, when you're talking about all the admin side of it. Because also you're, you just are not able to think and um, I actually, one of the things I asked my friends to do actually after Greg died was write me a list, write me a list of everything and every person you can think of that I am going to need to contact. Um, and that was really, that was really helpful. But I think what you also need to do is, yeah, that kind of body doubling thing that I know that helps, that helps me massively Definitely. having someone to sit down with me and go, right what are we doing Mm -hmm. and like break it down because I can't imagine how overwhelming that must have been oh oh uh, awful 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 and I think also then I didn't really know I didn't know about my ADHD then when I was doing that and I just that voice in my head of like everyone else is doing this everyone else can sort this stuff out why can't you sort this out why are you avoiding this um and dealing with the grief as well, like that initial grief was was so hard of those two things together. And let's listen to Priyanka Patel on using an ADHD diagnosis as a force for social and medical reform. I think everyone can agree the issue does lie with GPs. I personally experienced it and I feel a lot of people have experienced it. And I do think the way moving forward is to really have GPs truly understand what ADHD symptoms look like in women, because, you know, there are so many things which affect it, like puberty, menopause, you know, or or hormones, everything to do with that, then, you know, the fact that we can be misdiagnosed with other disorders more than men, and that more women tend to show inattentive symptoms compared to hyperactive. And, you know, if we have hyperactive symptoms, they're not seen as hyperactive because we might have like really restless mind, which is a symptom of hyperactivity, but we mask it because, 
you know, we were talking about this earlier about societal expectations that we have this pressure as women to appear a certain way. And then, then, you know, I'll bring in culture again, because when you're in an Indian culture, you have the expectation to be like, you know, a good housewife, a good mother to keep everything running. And that's already hard. But when you don't have those executive functioning skills, that's even harder. And, you know, I've been called lazy, I have been called all sorts of things because I just can't do it. And, you know, my family call me Hurricane Hilda when I go back home because everything is just a mess. And no matter what I do, I just cannot get everything in order. So, you know, there's all these things which are just making it so difficult for women just to get that first step to get the referral. So that's what I'm really trying to work on. And um, I need to work with my trust to see if there's a way that I can do this because nothing like this has been done before and that's what's making it quite hard because to get funding you have to kind of have some sort of evidence that you know this is going to be successful you're not going to be wasting your money this is going to work but that there's nothing like this out there everything out there has kind of identified what the problems are but then it's like why has no one done anything about them you've told us okay there's abc going wrong but then why has no one actually done anything to to make this better, which, you know, really baffles me. We're going into 2023 and there has been nothing on trying to improve access for women to ADHD services. It's it's absolutely shocking, I think. But I'm going to try to do that. And then because I work within secondary care, another thing which I do really want to try and do is, is help with the waiting times because that is just, it's a joke. I know people are waiting years and years on end. And, you know, I want to find out exactly what the problems are within these the secondary care clinics. Like, why is the wait so long? Is it because of the backlog? Are there not enough prescribers? I've also found through evidence that sometimes why the wait is not long is because GPs just aren't giving the right information. And then they have to relay it back. So then this goes back to GPs again, about, you know, increasing awareness and education. I mean, there's been studies which have shown that GPs actually say they want it, you know, their undergrad and, you know, postgrad and then training to be a GP, there's nothing in it about ADHD in women, you know, I've spoken to GPs about this, and there's a real gap for this. So yeah, that's my my plans. It's in very, very early stages. I'm still trying to figure out what my first step is going to be because I think I need to figure out exactly what, because when you get a research project done, you need to kind of satisfy all sorts of parties. So you have to satisfy your employer to take time out, satisfy the people that are going to give you funding, and then, you know, also, also satisfy the people who are going to be supervising you and, you know, putting their name on the project with you as well. So there's a lot that goes in it. And I know initially I'm going to have to do a lot of stuff by myself, which isn't funded, which I'm more than happy to do to kind of, you know, evaluate the service as a whole. Um, and then we also need to look at, you know, the follow-up with ADHD clinics, as in, why do they just give us medication and then put us with our GPs and that's it? You know, you have to do it holistically, give us coaching, help us with lifestyle improvements, help us with diet hacks. There's so many things which impact our ADHD symptoms. You can't just give us a pill and then say, right, this is it, just go, you'll be fine. It's not right. And I just don't feel like people with ADHD just get the recognition even after getting the diagnosis on you know how severe it is um so this is something that I'm really trying to push because I don't think people understand how undiagnosed how undiagnosed ADHD can really impact your life and I feel that's why there's not enough funding for these services because I think because of the stereotype you think okay if someone's not 
diagnosed or treated they'll just be a bit hyper they might not be able to focus a bit but you know it'll be fine no oh my god there's increased risks of suicide increased risk of car accidents increased risk of comorbid mental health conditions financial debt broken relationships you lose your house your kids there's so many things which happen which the nhs funding body or whoever it is that decides where the money goes i just don't think they understand and this is where we really have to show them and say look this is the reality of what's happening just because you can't physically see it like a blood clot or you know or, or an infection doesn't mean that it's not important so yeah there's a there's a lot to be done and i really do hope that i can you know, spend the rest of my, um, you know, life and career trying to work on this, because I think I've really found my passion with what I want to do. And, you know, I'm going to try everything, even if it means I'm ramming down GP doors being like, look, I've got a leaflet about ADHD in women, you have to read it, I'm not going to leave until you read it. So, you know, that I'm going to figure out a way around this, there's, there's, I feel like if you are determined enough, and you have enough motivation to do something, you will do it. And I think as well, this is where I feel like my ADHD has helped me a lot because when you hyper-focus on something and you absolutely love it, you put all your time and energy into it. I'm delighted to say I have a new podcast sponsor, Loop Earplugs. And if you are anything like me who has noise sensitivity while trying to concentrate or can hear most low-level noises, such as a clock ticking or a fridge whirring, it can really stir up our sensory overload. The loop earplugs allow you to tune out of this outside noise, especially if your sensory output is sensitive. Sometimes that needs to reduce the outside stimulus to help you focus, relax or sleep. And from the age of about 10 or 11, I've always had to use earplugs at night just to be able to calm the constant noise that's going on inside my head and prevent me from picking up on the slightest external noise. Now with earplugs, my brain feels quieter and my nervous system can rest. It's hard to describe it as anything else. Just less outside stimulus helps my brain feel relaxed. And the loop quiet are especially effective in helping me find some calm when there's a lot of noise in my environment. So if you are a commuter and find the sensory overload on a train or a bus or a plane is overstimulating or in the office perhaps, and you you want something more discreet that doesn't stand out, then the Loop earplugs are fantastic for this. I also really like the Loop Engage because they just help me turn down some of the background noises to help me focus, kind of like a ritual when my Loop earplugs are in, my brain goes into focus mode. And the Loop Engage are a different type of earplug that reduces less, filters the noise, and keeps the conversation sharp. Now, loop earplugs are designed to make all sounds less intense so we can hear what's happening around us, but it allows us to process the sensory inputs at a pace our brain prefers without reacting to every little noise. The earplugs also look very cool, very subtle as well, and they are easy to clean and importantly come in different interchangeable sizes so you'll always find a size that fits comfortably. And because I love these loop earplugs so much, I've asked for a discount for you all. So here it is. It's loopxww for 15% off. So head to loopearplugs.com and enter the code loopxww. And I've put all the details on the show notes. Head to loopearplugs.com, enter the code loopxww. You'll be able to get that discount. Now back to today's podcast. And here is Joseph Pack. And we talk about designing a bespoke ADHD routine that works for you. We do know that uh, Wim Hof getting in, it's called water boost dopamine by like 2.5 times baseline, which is 
massive. It's like equivalent to some class A drugs, except without the side effects. We also know that it boosts adrenaline by huge amount, like over 500%. That does two different things there. One is it's helping you to focus and it really does do that. And if you're feeling low, which a lot of us can, then the boost of adrenaline takes that away. Mm. So obviously getting into ice cold water is a very, very extreme thing to do. And I also think that a lot of people with ADHD are also into doing extreme things as well. So it works. The breathing techniques, they are, like I said, because they're so easy to start. And if you do commit to 10, 15 minutes of it, you will be so relaxed at the end. I actually tend to use it almost every 25 minutes. If I'm like, say I'm doing something I really don't want to do. That could be like doing my finances or something. Every 25 minutes, I finish like a a round of trying to focus and I just go straight back into the breathing again, just to reset myself. And and it's that is why I think the Wim Hof method is so powerful for ADHD. And here's a wonderful Alex Campbell, where we're talking about reframing old stories and choosing to thrive with ADHD. I had a client say to me, I realise now I'm not a failed neurotypical. And it was this wonderful moment of like, yes, you are wonderful in your distinctions and in, in, in how you see the world. And um, this is a client who has autism and ADHD. And it was a wonderful moment for her to realise like a compassionate, oh, I don't have to continue on that treadmill of trying hard. You know, we have this little mantra of when we don't know, we just try harder, do more, be better, try harder, do more, be better. And we've been doing it our entire lives and it never works. Mm. It's never worked. Yeah. I mean, it's so powerful to be able to hear that in that capacity because the failed Mm. neurotypical (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just being able to articulate it like that where if we just try something different or we just do this today or we let's try this way and then again we fail and what's that going to keep doing to our self-esteem of picking ourselves up and and I wasn't flawed it's not my personality it's not there's not something wrong with me I used to just say that there's something wrong with me like what is wrong with me it was toxic Mm. I think there is this part where you're right where something starts to change in our story about how we see ourselves in terms of, I think that whole character defect piece, like there's something wrong with me. We say it to ourselves, might even say it out loud. It becomes this binding thing that, that the diagnosis can provide this. It's like a glint of hope of what I, what I think is held true for so long might not be true. That's quite a powerful place to to start to go, maybe that isn't true, because for our entire lives, that is truth. And we're going to go back to Winford Dorr, who talks so beautifully about activating the cerebellum to increase our mental capacity with ADHD. Let me try and explain what's happening neurologically with leads to ADHD. The prefrontal cortex is very involved, but that's kind of down the line. So if someone has a skill, let's say reading, which is a major problem for many with ADHD, not for all, but for many, the problem with reading for the vast majority, and I mean over 90%, is their eye tracking isn't a fully developed skill. It's not perfect. Instead of their eyes going smoothly, their eyes are jumping around. And 
we've got a, a video test which takes 10 minutes and shows parents and teachers this and they get blown away. Well, the dads don't. The dads get angry that, that, that the schools haven't given this to them before because all sorts of wrong assumptions were made, being made about why a child isn't reading easily. If it's poor eye tracking, the letters are going in scrambled, sometimes backwards, sometimes upside down because the eyes are jumping around and they've got an enormous amount of processing to do to turn that into words they can comprehend. Well, mm. that's a skill. It's nothing to do with intelligence. Often it's assumed they can't be very bright because they're not scoring very well. No, it's usually the opposite. The brighter you are, the more likely you are to have some skills incompletely developed. So the cerebellum is what creates skills. The cerebellum is what learns. And if you end up with a skill that's underdeveloped, like and we're taking the example of eye tracking, then the thinking brain has to get involved every time you try and use that skill. They call it conscious compensation. So instead of it being a fully unconscious skill, it's partly unconscious because it's partly developed, but then the thinking brain gets involved to help out. Now, the trouble with the thinking brain is, A, it's busy, very busy. We can only do about seven things at once. But secondly, it's so much slower than the cortex. So the prefrontal cortex, where the thinking brain is, is they're arguing about this. I'm, I'm, typically, it's 100,000 times slower than the cortex. So if you, so let's jump to riding a bike. If you try and ride a bike and you haven't got those skills hardwired by the cerebellum, you fall off because it's your thinking brain telling you how to balance, trying to tell you how far to lean over and don't forget to turn the pedals and this is how you use the brakes and so on. When you're thinking about it, you fall off because the processing mm. is too slow. It's only when the cerebellum has taken those thoughts, created a program that it performs in the cortex where it's 100,000 times faster, can you actually ride? So coming back to poor reading skills and poor eye tracking, when you've got conscious compensation, in other words, the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex helping out with that underdeveloped skill, it's too slow, it's clumsy, it's bad, mm. and reading is hard work. And what's worse, you're filling the thinking brain with stuff that need not, should not be there. Now, that's bad for two reasons. First of all, when you're reading, you're unscrambling all of those words that are jumping about, and letters that are jumping about because your eyes are moving. You're unscrambling that in your thinking brain. And you're trying to remember the words you've just read in your thinking brain. So you get to the end of the mm. sentence. It's been far too busy and you can't remember what you read. So you read it again and again yeah. and again. It's incredibly hard work. And then spelling is difficult, really difficult, because every time you see a word, your letters happen to be jumping about in a different way. The letters are going in in a scrambled order. So learning to, to read is uh, learning to spell is very, very difficult. So can you see the cerebellum is the root cause, but the consequence yeah. happens in the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain, and also in there are your executive functions. So your thinking brain is overloaded. Your executive functions are out the window. They're well down the list of priorities. And what are they? Attention, impulsivity, short-term memory functions, control of emotions, and so on. And what are the symptoms we see with ADHD? Well, I've just listed them. Yeah. So, so 
prefrontal cortex absolutely involved, but the reason that's overloaded is the cerebellum hasn't been fine-tuning those skills. We need all the time. And finally, we have Sarah Templeton on making life work for you after an ADHD diagnosis. I want to be the person that made the laws change around testings of offenders. Originally, I wanted all offenders tested on induction wings. An induction wing in a prison is something that every new prisoner goes on to and every prisoner who's changed prison goes on to. There's a certain thing called an induction wing. And on the induction wing, you're not allowed to do anything, as in you're not allowed visits, you're not allowed to go to the gym, you're not allowed to go to the library, you're not allowed to have a job. So there's very little things that you can do. You sit on induction for at least a fortnight, some people it's longer. And while you're on induction, they test you for English, maths, hearing, uh, sight, um, sexual transmitted infections. They ask you about self-harm. All of these things take about a day. And for the rest of the time, the boys said they're bored stupid because they have nothing to do. And as I said to everybody, the one thing they're not testing them for is the one thing pretty much all of them have got, and that's ADHD. So I just want to make it that it, it is a law, or not law, a regulation, shall we say, that included in those tests in the induction wing is an ADHD test and an ASD test, because while we're at it, let's do ASD as well as ADHD. Uh, but it, on my journey with this, I've been joined by some people from the police, um, and I've now got four uh, currently serving police officers who are passionate and they're absolutely right about this that people need testing before they get into the prison they need testing when they come into the police stations for the first time so i've now kind of expanded my dream and my dream is that there's testing in police stations and we've got some very high police officers involved in this you know the heads of neurodiversity in the police and all the rest of it we want everybody coming into a police station for the first time so as soon as they get any sort of file or record on that initial file is an ADHD and ASD test. So that if they score high for either, they are immediately referred. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it's helped guide you towards some further self-healing, self-exploration and most importantly, self-acceptance. And if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work, such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions, connecting with other like-minded women and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.